morning, Fellowship. We are the Harrises. I'm Mark. This is my wife, Beverly. And we will be reading today's scripture, which is found in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 35. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Good morning, Fellowship. Thank you to the Harrises for reading our text this morning. Uh, beautiful. Beautiful, and we'll get into that. Uh, I want to uh, speak to the men just a minute. I want to give you some motivation. As Monty mentioned, our forge retreat, I want you to know that I'm going to be cooking a massive, incredible shrimp bowl on Friday night. So uh, maybe that'll push you to go sign up, and uh, we'll have a great time doing that. And uh, uh, since we don't have uh, an audience here this morning, our, our building isn't... Uh, 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 full. I want to act like we are, and uh, I want to welcome uh, and give a shout out to Sam and Sarah Stark, who are joining us for the first time. So there are other first timers out there, but I know about them. So good morning to you, Sam and Sarah. Everybody say hey to Sam and Sarah in your homes. That'd be funny. Well, if you would, turn with me. Get your Bibles open to Luke 13, starting in verse 22, and also uh, as a reminder, you can go to our website and print uh, some sermon notes there. Just click on Fellowship Online and you'll see those available. As we start this morning, I want to talk about doors. Over a lifetime of 70 years, you and I will walk through a door of some kind tens of millions of times. We'll go in and we'll go out and we'll do it all over again without even thinking about it. It's as normal as breathing in our culture. 
Matter of fact, doing a little door research this week, someone has actually been trying to figure out how they can put a door meter on a Fitbit type watch. We'll see how that progresses. There are all kinds of doors. There are front doors, back doors, barn doors, panel doors, glass doors, pet doors, sliding doors, flush doors, insulated doors, hinge doors, Dutch doors, pocket doors. I mean, we could go on and on and on. As I look, the, the, the list is endless. There are countless of books, believe it or not, just about doors. Do a Google search. Doors of the World was one of them. The Doors of Stone. There's actually a famous rock band that some of you folks back in your pre-Christ days probably listened to called The Doors. There's countless songs with doors in the title. Bob Dylan, if you like rock and roll, had one knocking on heaven's door. My guess is that was not a biblical song. But if you like country, old Charlie Rich came out with one behind closed doors. And I'll leave it at that. There's a door county. There are streets named doors. There's door restaurants. In the Proverbs, it speaks often of doors. And maybe the most famous door in all of Christendom is, comes from C.S. Lewis, the Chronicle, Chronicle of Narnia, which is the door of the wardrobe that they walk through to get to Narnia. Now that you know way more about doors than you ever hoped or imagined, you're welcome for that. I do have a point to make. In our text this morning, Jesus speaks of the only door that really matters. About all the billions of doors that have been walked through, made, talked about, sung about, and written about, Jesus says there's only one door that you and I should concern ourselves with that really matters, that, that has, in a sense, eternity attached to it. And he calls that one the narrow door. And there's some criteria for those who can enter, as we'll see in our text this morning. This narrow door, it opens, it shuts, it can be knocked on. And Jesus says, all of us, every human should strive to enter this door. Doors, as we know, are often overlooked as we walk through them. And they are a much needed part of our lives. They serve an incredible purpose. But the door in our text this morning should never be overlooked and is the only door we really need. So let's unpack this passage as we see Jesus here both respond to a question and a warning from the religious leaders of the day. Now he starts off with a question, or the text starts off with a question. Will the number of people who are saved be small? Verse 22 says he went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, Luke, what he does in verse 22 is in some ways he gives us the setting. Since Luke 9.51, we have seen, it's why we, why we title this part of Scripture, The Road Less Travel, we have seen Jesus turn his face to Jerusalem for one purpose, which was to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And he's still traveling on this road, and it's just a few months before its crucifixion. He's weaving in and out of uh, 
all of Israel and each region teaching about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God means salvation. And salvation means the kingdom of God. And so as we've seen, even in the last few weeks, he is the model evangelist. He is calling people to himself. He is clarifying the issue. And someone in the crowd, this Jewish crowd, asked the question, will the number of people who are saved be small? Verse 23. Now we must remember, as I said, this audience are Jews, made up of religious Jews. He was not addressing a pagan audience. He was, if I may say, he was talking to the church crowd. Most of who assumed they had eternal life because they were good Jews. The question also tells us that the questioner in the crowd, they didn't know what Jesus was saying. They had been following him. They knew he was speaking of salvation often. So this question was, will the saved be few? But here's what Jesus does, and he often does this, responding to a question. He doesn't address the question directly. He actually reorients the question. And he reorients or turns this question around and responds really with another question. And that is, will the saved be you? He turns it from will the saved be few to will the saved be you? He turns it back that they might examine their own salvation. So this morning, Jesus gives us church folks some critical information on salvation. And he really forces us to ask the questions. One, are we saved? For you to ask the question, am I saved? Are those who I love most, my family and those dear friends, are they really saved? And in those I communicate with and do life with and have influence with, are they really saved? So let's unpack Jesus' response to this question, will the saved be few? And to do that, we're going to look at four A's this morning. It can be summed up with four words, alone, anxiety, acquaintance, and atrocious. The first one is alone. Look at verse 24. Jesus tells them, strive. This is his response to the question, will the saved be few? You strive, it actually says, to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When Jesus answers a question about how one is to be saved, he starts off with this command, this imperative to strive. Now, if you're from the evangelical world and you're hearing about the context or the, the, the message on salvation and you hear the word of strive or effort connected with it, it may make hair stand up on the back of your neck or head if you have it on your head. Mine would be... Maybe on my arms. So the first question we might ask is then, well, does strive really mean what we think strive does? Maybe in the Greek, strive is a different meaning. And so certainly Jesus can't be attaching strive and effort and intentionality and works with salvation. So I looked up the word strive, and here's what it is. It is an imperative verb or a command. It is where we get our word agonize. It is a word to describe efforts of an athlete in competition that are straining for a goal. It is, it is a word used to describe hand-to-hand -hand combat, combat. 
It is one who is engaging in a fight. So it does mean exactly how you and I would define it in our culture. So I ask the question, is Jesus saying that striving and effort is a part of salvation? Let me just pause there. Consider that. The answer is yes. Yes, in the sense that Jesus is the narrow door. Jesus is exhorting his audience and us to labor hard, to enter into salvation through him, through his message of the gospel, through trusting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of one's sins. This narrow door image is saying that a fewer number of folks will enter than expected. This narrow door image is saying that there is no automatic entry and ultimately that Jesus is the only way of salvation as that narrow door. The narrow door puts it this way. The salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's righteousness alone. And that is the gospel. This crowd, though, that Jesus was speaking to needed to hear these words because in their minds, salvation and entering into the kingdom of God meant this. It meant restoration of the nation of Israel. It meant a blessing on Israel via the promises of Abraham. This narrow door implies that it takes some deliberate thought and great effort to really think about how you, that's what Jesus is saying to his audience, how you as a Jew, what you are trusting in. He's saying to them, are you trusting in your race? Are you trusting in your ancestry? Are you trusting in your self-righteousness? I want you to think about that with great effort. Are you trusting in your sincerity? Are you trusting in your obedience to the law? And are you trusting in this assumption that every Jew will go to heaven? Jesus is saying to them, it will take the fight of your life to save your soul from such anti-biblical, gospel-centered thought. Folks, it takes no striving at all, not a bit. We do it like breathing. We do it like blinking. It takes no striving at all to think of ourselves as good, and therefore, since we're good, we make it to heaven. That's as easy as it comes. That's like a dead fish floating downstream. Here's what takes effort. A fish that is alive to swim upstream against the natural current takes incredible striving and effort. I don't think I have to tell you that we live in a world today where everyone will be in heaven when they die. R.I.P. Rest in peace to anyone and to everyone who dies. Our culture promotes this idea that all roads lead to God and all good people go to heaven. And everyone thinks they are one of those good people that, that only Hitler types go to hell. Every time someone dies, Twitter literally blows up. Someone that's known, it blows up with this. 
another angel receive their wings today. And what Jesus is saying and what the gospel says and what the scripture says is, no. People will say, Jeff, and they have said to me, well, you don't know their hearts. I don't have to know their hearts. All I have to know is what Jesus says about salvation in him and him alone. And in light of that, then I can look at that person and see about they never mentioned the name of Jesus Christ except in an expletive. There's so much false Christianity and deception even in the churches where the exclusivity of Christ and salvation is denied. Universalism is rampant in our churches because it focuses only on the attributes of God's love and mercy while at the same time it denies that we're all enemies of God because of our sin until we trust Christ. So here we have Jesus, the model evangelist, is calling people to become true believers, true saved followers of Christ. In 14.6, Jesus could have said it no clearer. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The salvation of your eternal soul, Jesus is saying in our text, it's not a casual subject. It's not something that you shouldn't think about. He is saying, strive with great effort. Think about the most important question of all of life, and that is, do you know me? Will you spend eternity with me? Are you saved in a biblical way. <clears throat> you ought to take great effort in examining what you are trusting in to be saved. If you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? The only words that come out of our mouth would be something like this. Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone as we fall on our face and thank God for his mercy to us. In any other way we answer that question, questions then, do we really, are we really saved? Do we add a work to it? Do we, I'm a nice person. I provided for my family. I'm a good father. We add all those things, and that the clarity on that is important. Jesus is speaking to that this morning. So not only does he use the word alone, but I think... We could use the word anxiety to describe our next few verses, verses 24 and 25. And actually, they're wrong on your outline. I apologize for that. Verse 24 and 25. This begins to be a really heartbreaking portion of Scripture. Because speaking of the door, Jesus says, many will want to enter the door and will not be able because the master of the house will shut the door. And when folks knock on it and say, Lord, open the door, the master will say to them, I do not know where you came from. To me, there's some serious anxiety in these verses. Now, I know our world and our church, we are eat up with anxiety issues. But folks, we ain't got anxiety issues like these folks got anxiety issues. Think about it. 
Imagine being these folks who thought they were in and now they were out and they can't get in. You're talking about some anxiety. This, this speaks of desperation, these verses, urgency, and that time is limited. It goes back to Genesis 6-3 that tells us the door of the ark shut and the whole world drowned in judgment. That's the picture here. Jesus is trying to communicate that the offer of salvation has a time limit. And this should naturally produce some urgency, some, some anxiety that would make us really take it serious and strive with great effort to think about, are we really saved? The sad part is many will discover this truth after it is too late, after the door is closed. The idea of purgatory which is taught by the Roman Catholic Church, is demonic. Purgatory is a place where when we die, we go to pay off our sin so that we can eventually get to heaven. And it is way outside of what Scripture says. And it is exactly what Satan wants you to believe, that you'll have a second chance once the door is closed and that the door really isn't closed. Jesus is saying here in our text that access to him after a certain, certain point becomes impossible. Time is over when you and I die. When someone dies, time is over. The scriptures tell us that first a man dies and then's the judgment. And we don't know when we're going to die. We're all living on borrowed time. And in this pandemic, it, it should bring those kind of things up to our mind and to our heart. We don't know. Tomorrow is not promised, the scriptures tell us. We know time is over when God becomes weary of our unbelief. And we don't know when that is for any, any individual person. But Romans 1 tells us to those who know the truth but suppress it, and everyone knows the truth, Romans 1 says, they can see God through the creation, but they suppress it. They worship the created instead of, or the, cre the created instead of the creator. In, in Romans 1, it tells us three times God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to their sinful passions, and to a debased mind. So time is up. And then the final closing of the door, when time is up, will be when Jesus returns. Just a few chapters back, Luke 12, Luke makes it clear, Jesus makes it clear, that he will return like a thief in the night when you do not know that he is coming. And when he comes, Revelation 20 tells us, when he returns, at that very moment, time will be up because if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, at that moment, Revelation 20 says, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised. So, so I exhort you, those who are listening here, maybe those who are new to fellowship, those who are... Uh, 
those who are listening online for the first time or have just joined us since we've been doing live stream or, or those in our church who are not sure, today is today to trust Christ and make sure. The Jews had this unique opportunity in our text to hear Jesus in person. But that window was about to close as Jesus made it to Jerusalem. There was no last-minute bargaining when the door shut. We enter the narrow door on God's terms and in God's time, or we never enter it at all, this narrow door that he speaks of. I love what J.C. Ryle said on hell. He said, hell is nothing but truth known too late. Folks, when people die, it should shock us, should shock us into asking the question, where will I go when I die? That's why a funeral can be so powerful. But if we're honest, the masses simply respond after a death. See you on the other side. There's simply an assumption there that they're going to be there one day too. And we all know what happens when we assume. Everyone does not get in. The shock of who's in and who's not in eternity will be like nothing we've ever felt. And Jesus is communicating exactly that in this text. So we have alone, we have anxiety, and our third A word is acquaintance, verse 26 and verse 27. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. The Jews' response to Jesus or to the, the Jesus' uh, words is really ones of protest. Look at what he says. But Jesus, when you talk about the door's going to be shut, <laughs> but Jesus, we ate with you. Remember when we sat by the lake and cooked up some quesadillas and had some philosophical talks about the law? Remember when I came to hear you teach down on Sinai Road? We've hung out. We've followed you for several years here, tens of thousands of us. And that's the problem. These people were acquainted with Jesus. They had associated themselves with Jesus, but Jesus was not acquainted with them because they were not identified with him. The Jews had believed that a mere association with Jesus was enough to save them. And if there's any relevant question in today's church, in the South, in the United States, in the world, it would be this. People think they are saved and heaven is their future because they have in some way been around Jesus or the church. Maybe they've come from a Christian family. But association with Christ is not enough. Jen and I were having a conversation recently that if we had to say honestly that both sets of our parents very good chance they don't know Christ. They were associated with Christ. They were associated with church. They were associated with the gospel, but not sure they were identified 
with Christ in his life, his death, his burial and resurrection of Christ alone. And that is what will save you. Jesus actually calls them evil because they are not covered with the blood of Christ or the righteousness of Christ. And all of us, the scripture calls us evil, sinful, depraved, in need of a savior that will forgive. Scripture speaks clearly of that. And at the point a person trusts Christ, the blood of Christ covers us with the righteousness of Christ himself. Theologians have called that for years the great exchange that Christ takes on my sin and I take on, or those who trust Christ take on his righteousness. That's why Jesus uses the word he does here. But sadly, many, even in the church, have trusted in their own goodness and righteousness instead of trusting in the righteousness of Christ. So we have the word alone, anxiety, acquaintance, and lastly, atrocious. We could say that it's becoming, it's, 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 it's shocking, it's horror. Jesus now speaks of these folks in verses 28 and 20. Through 30 of being in hell. He says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The Jews, they prided themselves to be children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore kin, in some ways, to all the prophets. They have conveniently, though, forgotten that they, the Jews, are the ones that actually killed these prophets, and they're about to actually kill the one who sent these prophets. And Jesus is saying to these Jewish religious people, they will be on the outside in hell. Their unwilling, their unwillingness to fall on their face, confess their sin, and cry out to Christ, the promised Messiah who stands right in front of them, is causing this fate. To add gas to the fire, literally, Jesus is letting them know that the Gentiles will be in the kingdom of God, which is really like a hot knife that cuts deep in their prideful hearts. That the kingdom of God is now, once it goes to Jerusalem, going to be opened to the whole world, as Psalms 107 says. That the redeemed of the world will be from all over the world, from all over the earth. Imagine the shock that they're hearing these words that those that thought they were first are now last, and those that were last are now first. The Jews expected with certainty that they would be in heaven and now they find themselves from the words of Jesus that they will actually be in hell without trusting in him. I, think, I love what D.A. Carson says. I put this at the top of your notes. It sums up those that are lost, both then and now. The heart of our lostness is our profound self-focus. We do not want to know him. If knowing him is on his terms. And if Jesus is saying anything this morning, he's saying salvation is on my terms. 
I am the narrow door. I am the narrow way. I am the narrow gate. Other places he uses that term. He's saying salvation is on my terms. Carson goes on and says, We are happy to have a God we can more or less manipulate. We do not want a God to whom we admit that we are rebels in heart and mind, that we do not deserve his favor, and that our only hope is in his pardoning and transforming grace. That is what they are rejecting, and therefore they will spend eternity separated from him. And that's what folks in our culture reject. Personally, I cannot count. I literally can't count the number of times I've seemingly had this very conversation with folks one-on-one, many times in my office or other places, who profess Jesus because of their association with him via the church or through maybe a family member who's who's a real deal follower of Christ or through some prayer they prayed when they were nine years old, and yes, nine-year-olds can trust Christ, but that's in their mind. You know, I I prayed that prayer at nine, and yet there is nothing in their life that would show that, and there's nothing in terms of desires that they want to follow Christ at all. There's nothing that shows whatsoever, whether in action or desire, that they possess the Lord Jesus living inside of them, living inside of them through his spirit. They live as they please. And as Monty spoke about a few weeks ago, they presume that eternity is theirs. Jesus is saying, stop presuming because you're going to be shocked of who is in eternity and who is not. As we go to our next section, at the very time Jesus is warning the nation of Israel in some ways about being locked out of the banquet table of heaven, at that very time, Luke tells us he receives this warning from the Pharisees, or religious leaders, that Herod wants to kill him. So we have this warning in verse 31, Herod wants to kill you. It says, at the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, when I thought about that, I thought, you know, this is really not new to Jesus. From the very beginning of his life at his birth, murderers have chased him and wanted to kill him. In spite of him being perfectly holy, gracious, forgiven, offering eternal life and joy, he was constantly threatened to be killed. Remember at his birth when Herod the Great tried to murder him and he heard a king had been born and he felt threatened by it and Herod the Great ended up to try to murder Jesus, uh, killing every Jewish male under two. After the first sermon in his hometown, they were so enraged that they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff even though they knew him growing up. The Jewish leaders wanted him dead because he condemned their work system for salvation. And we could go on and on in the scripture. Everywhere Jesus went, those he spoke to wanted him dead. So this is nothing new. And so we hear, we see here that Herod wanted him dead too. Now, which Herod is this? This is actually Herod the Great's son. And he saw Jesus as a threat just as his father did. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Man, you better get out of here. 
Herod wants to kill you. You're in his region now, probably in Perea. Remember, this is the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist because John the Baptist called out his illicit marriage. We know from Luke 23 that Herod had been wanting to see Jesus. He had been hearing about Jesus. And finally, he got a face-to-face meeting with Jesus and he was questioning Jesus. And Jesus answered Herod's questioning with nothing. Nada. He did not say a word to this evil man. Jesus made... What's intriguing here, Jesus made the religious Jewish leaders and Herod, the Roman governor, he made them friends. Jesus had the power to take two people who absolutely hated each other, which were the Jewish religious leaders and the governor of Rome here, Herod, the leader in Rome. They hated each other for many, many reasons And it was Jesus, the common denominator, who actually made them work together to kill him. Their warning to Jesus was probably, the Pharisees' warning to Jesus was probably a way to intimidate him to stop teaching. But we see Jesus' response in verses 32 to 35. And this warning that Herod wanted to kill him did not intimidate Jesus. Look what Jesus says. He says, go and tell that fox. Now, I'll just confess, when I read that, I laughed out loud. I said, man, I don't know if I remember Jesus calling somebody a name much in Scripture, but he called Herod a fox. Jesus is not intimidated. He calls one of the leaders of Rome a fox. And a fox is a cunning, destructive, sneaky, nuisance, furry, little mutt, varmint-like creature. A fox has no power. A lion may have power, but a fox is just a punk animal. Jesus declares, tell that fox that no punk varmint is going to stop me from my mission to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. He says, I've been casting out demons. I've been healing folks. And I'll finish my mission, and my mission is to ultimately purchase the souls of men and women by my shed blood. And then Jesus straight up tells them, I'm going to raise on the third day. But they don't believe it. They don't catch it. They don't get it. Some ways, man, Jesus, when when I read that, I thought, man, he put it out there. He called it before it happened. You ever seen athletes do that? I remember standing on the sideline at Clemson University when I worked with the football team there. And Clemson was playing Florida State. Florida State was one of the top teams in the country. And Deion Sanders was playing for Florida State. And the crowd was booing Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders stepped back to take a punt return. And he raised both hands and the crowd got quiet. And he motioned this. I'm going to catch the ball and I'm going to the house. And as he did, the crowd booed. He called it before it happened. Dion caught the ball, and he went to the house, and not one Clemson player, to my sad heart, laid a hand on him. Jesus does this here. Jesus calls the shot. I'm going to raise for the third day. But they didn't get it. Verse 33, Jesus... 
must go to Jerusalem because that is where the prophets of old have gone to die. It was not a pagan nation that killed Jesus. It was the people of Israel. Jerusalem was filled with the blood of the prophets and now they were about to add the blood of the Messiah. Jesus, this ought to encourage us. He is determined to finish the job that God the Father gave him. Jesus is saying here, I have nothing to fear from Herod because I will not die until my father said so. And my father has said I will die on the cross in Jerusalem. You know, the true is the same is true for you and I if we know Christ. We really have nothing to fear because we won't die until the father says so. I love that. It's great encouragement. And then lastly, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus is deeply saddened. He laments Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem represents the whole nation of Israel. And he speaks of how he would have deeply cared for them. He says, I would have deeply cared for you like a hen cares for their chicks under their wings. Protective. It's a beautiful picture. It's tender. It's round-the-clock care. But the people of Israel were not willing. One writer put it this way. Only one thing stopped God from exercising such care. The people did not wish him to do so. This is a hard passage. This can be a great encouraging passage. But I I do think this passage causes you and I, as we go into our so what, it causes us to ask three crucial questions. The first one is, are you saved? Are you saved? Jesus is saying, if you're unsure, you must strive, fight, be relentless to answer that question biblically and not based on your assumptions nor your association with Jesus in the church. We love the phrase, once saved, always saved. But you first must be really saved to be able to wallow in the grace of always saved. (laughs) So ask that question. Are you saved? And if you are not, if you're watching this and you are not, you can place your trust in Christ today. You can say, I am a sinner. I am in need of a Savior. I have been trusting in my own goodness, my own kindness, my success, whatever it is, I trust in Christ alone for salvation alone today. Transfer that trust today. Secondly, question it calls us to ask is, are you, are those that you really love saved? And what I mean by that is, are you willing to have these kind of hard conversations if God would allow to initiate them to get those people you love to to really think about, take great effort and strive in asking these hard questions. Are they saved or are you making an assumption that they are because they've been around you and the church? And thirdly, are those you know saved, those you do life with, those you have influence with, 
Man, don't, don't make that assumption. And here's what Jesus is saying to ultimately to all of us. He's calling us. He's the model evangelist. And he's calling us, his people, to follow in his footsteps. To be this model evangelist too. And he shows us, folks, this is a big question. And you and I must have striving in great effort to answer it. And to share it clearly with others. Take a minute to ask those questions in our so what. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. And we, those who are saved, are done so by your mercy. And we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone for salvation alone. We had nothing to it. We were blind in our sins, depraved, rebellious, going our own way, thinking our own thoughts, and your great mercy through the gospel touched us. We were once blind, but now we see. We were once lost, but now we're found. For those of us who are saved, Lord, we rejoice in your grace and your mercy to us. May we respond with lives that chase hard after you with transforming grace in our sanctification and for those this morning that are not sure Lord I pray you would this passage would do a sweet work in their heart a hard work but a gracious work to make them ask questions and then lastly Lord help us as we engage with our family members and those we love and those we sort of do life with in our circle give us opportunities to clarify the greatest news ever the gospel of grace. Help us to strive with great intentionality and great effort to do so. We love you. And everyone said, amen. We miss you. We want to get back soon. I feel emotional just saying that. <clears throat> it's okay. I'm getting old. Y'all can laugh at me later. We do miss you. We love you. And uh, stay safe. And we'll see you next week at 11. Take care of each other. Encourage each other. Jesus is still Lord, even in a pandemic. 
have a great week. See you next Sunday.